Hey, listeners, did you know that the team behind Real Outlaws has other podcasts, too? Discover them all at Noiser.com, home of the Noiser Network. You'll find hundreds of immersive true stories. There's a world of podcasts waiting for you. So don't miss it. Listen on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Highwayman Dick Turpin is the quintessential English anti-hero. Appearing from the shadows, a handkerchief drawn across his face, before a whimpering nobleman hears the fateful words, Stand and deliver, your money or your life. Roving the roads of Georgian England, robbing the rich, jumping fences on his faithful steed, with two loaded pistols and the reins clamped between his teeth. Are the legends true? Was there really such a man? Or is the truth a much darker story? Join us for a bloodthirsty tale of murder and mayhem in the English countryside. This is Dick Turpin Part 1, The Essex Gang. Autumn, 1737, a few miles north of London. The sun hangs low in the cooling sky, casting long shadows across the wild grass of Hampstead Heath. A dark figure astride a coal-black horse looks down at the distant spires and rooftops of London, shimmering in the haze. A breeze pushes the grass flat across the top of the hill. The man adjusts his long wig, ensuring the black ribbon on the ponytail is tight, then tugs his tricorn hat lower. He fastens the shining brass buttons of his long-tailed overcoat. He has a long ride ahead, through the cold of the night. But Richard Turpin, better known to his friends and enemies as Dick, is an expert horseman, unfazed by the journey. At the foot of the hill, a cloud of dust whips across the scrubby bushes. Three horsemen are approaching, the same three horsemen who've been on his tail since he left the fetid labyrinth of the city. The constable of Westminster and two of his men, and they are no friends of Turpin. With the price on his head enough to buy a house, the infamous highwayman is at this point in time one of the most infamous men in England. If caught, he knows it's the gallows for him. His three pursuers are closing. With one last look at the city he'll never return to, Turpin pulls a handkerchief up over his nose to block out the dust of the road, then yells, digging his spurs into his faithful mare's flanks. She snorts and drives forward, accelerating across the heath until she's galloping full tilt down the other side a shimmering comet of equine strength. Black Bess has served the highwayman well these past years, an exquisite animal, taut skin dark as polished jet stretched tightly over bulging muscles and sinews, the product of an English racehorse and a desert Arab. She's proved herself time and again able to outrun the various constables, thief takers, and mobs who've tried to bring him down. Slowing to a trot to conserve her energy, Turpin navigates narrow lanes, leaping streams and darting through woods. Skirting Highgate, Bess effortlessly clears a gate into a field, 
leaving their pursuers fumbling with the lock. At Crouch End, they meet a different obstacle. Angry townspeople rush into the road to stop him, but one glance at Bess, bathed in cold sweat, frothing teeth snarling at them, forces a hasty retreat. Nearing the toll bar gate, Turpin slows, quickly judging the height. He leans forward and whispers softly in Bess's ear. She paws the ground, then gallops forward, leaping, clearing the spikes by an inch. Turpin is long gone by the time the three men reach the gate, rummaging for coins to satisfy the armed turnpikemen before he'll let them through. Turpin picks up pace again through Tottenham, reins between his teeth and a pistol in each hand as he speeds past gawking townspeople. In Edmonton, the citizens cheer him on, roaring with appreciation as Bess leaps a donkey cart, riding off into the sunset. After several hours, his pursuers have fallen far behind. Turpin reins in at Stamford Coaching Inn to find it's already midnight. He orders raw beefsteak and three bottles of brandy. Steam rises from Bess's glistening flanks as Turpin washes her down with watered alcohol and rubs the steak on her bridle to ease the bruises. She stamps the ground impatiently and gently nuzzles his shoulder, as if, despite the exhaustion, she knows there's no time to dally. Not a moment too soon, Turpin swings back into the saddle as his pursuers arrive, ready to arrest him. Down the hill and over a fence, he rides on, into the darkness of the great forest of Sherwood. But still, the lawmen keep pace, switching to fresh horses at coaching inns along the Great North Road. After covering countless miles of moorland and numerous tumbling streams, Bess's strength starts to wane, but Turpin dares not stop. His fingers are numb and bleeding, back aching. He slows to a canter and reaches forward, pouring the last of the brandy down Bess's throat. She surges on with renewed vigor. As dawn breaks, Turpin spots a sign for Selby. A shout from behind turns his head, and there, not a quarter of a mile behind, is the constable and his two faithful men. Turpin spurs Bess onward, tendrils of mist lapping at her hooves as they thunder north. Soon the banks of the great river Ouse appear from the fog. Not waiting for the ferry, horse and rider plunge into the frigid waters and swim for the north bank. Shots ring out, slapping the surface. But soon, Turpin is leading Bess up the far bank and swinging into the saddle again. Into Fulford and no sign of the lawmen. But now Bess's breathing is labored, rasping. In the distance, the towers of York Minster gleam in the morning sun. As he approaches York Castle, Bess shudders. Turpin jumps down, leading her on, but she pulls up, moaning. As he turns to pat Bess's snout, she finally collapses to the cold ground, like a falling giant, dead. As the bells of York Minster strike six in the morning, Turpin crouches, caresses her neck, and weeps. 
It has come at the cost of his dearest friend, but he has made it. London to York in a single night to escape the noose. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. Mention Dick Turpin's name, and most people will recall a dashing highwayman who famously rides from London to York in a single night, arriving in the northern city before the news of his crimes in order to establish a cast-iron alibi. The story of the famous ride to York has been retold countless times, casting early Georgian highwayman Dick Turpin as the dandy hero of the road. But did this famous feat of endurance actually take place? How much has it been embellished through the centuries? What do we really know of the man who would become the courageous gentleman robber, dashing antihero, and scourge of the Great North Road? The story of Dick Turpin is one of gunfights and chases, robbery, betrayal, and murder but it's not the story you think you know. To uncover the truth about Dick Turpin, we have to go back about 50 years before his time, and to a man by the name of Nevison, an ex-soldier who fought on the losing royalist side during the English Civil War, who later turned to stalking the highways of England. James Sharp is Professor Emeritus at the University of York, and author of Dick Turpin, The Myth of the English Highwayman. He often crops up as John Neverson. He's probably better referred to as William Neverson. He is Yorkshire's own highwayman. He was born in Pontefract, and he was quite famous in his day. He was executed at York in 1684. Neverson plies his trade on the roads of Nottinghamshire, He reputedly never uses violence and develops a reputation as a roguish gentleman of the road. His greatest feat comes in 1676 with an epic ride to establish an alibi for his crimes. He is reputed to have done the reverse journey, as it were. He stole a bill of exchange or some such, which is a paper document which you you can use to raise money at a certain place. And the story is he stole that off a guy in a highway robbery in Yorkshire and then rode to London to cash it in before the guy could sort of inform the bank, as it were, that this, this document should be stopped. So should it really be Nevison we have to credit for Dick Turpin's legendary ride? Or is there more to this story? There are earlier rumors about this ride being done. It just seems to be something that people have attributed to them. The best story we've got comes from a book by Daniel Defoe, who was a very famous writer in the late 17th, early 18th century, who wrote 
in the 1720s, a multi-volume tour through the whole island of Great Britain. And he mentions a guy called Swift Nix, who allegedly carried out the robbery in the early morning, got to York by the early evening, and in the story played a game of bowls with the Lord Mayor of York and got chatting to him. So when he was eventually accused of this robbery, he said, oh no, I'm in York. I was in York that day and I was talking to the Lord Mayor. The problem is the identity of Swift Nix. There have been various people put through, one of them is Neverson, one of them is a highwayman called Richard Dudley, who was an ex-royalist, which a lot of them uh, claim to be. So there's no real identity to the person who did the original ride to York. Certainly, it's one of these sort of mythical or semi-mythical things that are attributed to a number of people, and it's just impossible to pin it down. So if this semi-mythical event is already being retold before Turpin's birth, how exactly did it become known as his most famous deed? As with many of our images and ideas about legendary outlaws, the truth is buried beneath years of tall tales. To dig through them to the real story of Dick Turpin and to uncover how his legend was forged, we need to understand the growing lawlessness of Georgian England. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the early 1700s, there is no police force. The rural landscape is sparsely populated. Outside the few cities lie patchworks of fields sprinkled with villages and hamlets alongside ancient roadways. It's a green and pleasant land yet to experience the urban sprawl and population explosion of the coming Industrial Revolution. The scattered towns employ constables who, depending on where you live, may take their job seriously or not. Some are overly zealous in pursuit of certain crimes, and not others. Some may be lazy and ineffectual. Some are susceptible to bribes, or simply side with the local gentry in any dispute. Because there's no police, it is the duty of ordinary citizens to apprehend criminals if they witness a crime. At the very least, they must join in the hue and cry which follows, as a mob pursues the villain. And yet, somehow this patchwork system of policing often succeeds. Criminals who are collared are then turned over to stand trial. I think the Turpin story throws up on occasions, the law and order system working reasonably well. A lot of what happens depends on private initiative, you know, that you have to complain to somebody. And you have a court system where serious criminals go to the equivalent of a crown court, what's called the Assizes in this period. Apprehension of suspects relies largely on informers or witnesses with appeals for information distributed through newspapers. The art of detection simply does not exist. And so it is against this backdrop in the mid-1720s that the English public first becomes aware 
of a particularly nasty criminal gang operating on the eastern fringes of London, in the Watham Forest area. The Essex Gang are a mob of poachers headed up by scar-faced 23-year-old Samuel Gregory and his two brothers. In Georgian England, poaching is endemic. It's got so bad that the Black Act of 1723 is passed, making it illegal to blacken or darken your face to camouflage yourself at night. Anyone found using violence, in disguise, or with a blackened face in a forest or royal park now faces the death penalty. Armed officials called Verderas patrol the royal forests to stem the tide, but the Essex gang are undeterred. These ruthless villains are not above using violence when taking the king's deer. The Verderers are powerless in the face of this crime wave, and Gregory's gang runs riot. After a successful night's poaching, Samuel Gregory needs somewhere to fence his deer. He needs a butcher willing to sell the venison through his shop, in one stroke creating illicit profit and disposing of evidence. Enter Butcher Richard Turpin. Richard is born to John and Mary Turpin in 1705, some 25 years before the Essex gang's crime spree. Turpin is born in Hempstead, Essex, at the Bluebell Inn, where his father is the landlord. As a teen, it's thought he's apprenticed to a butcher's in Whitechapel, London. We know very, very little about his life at that stage. His father, of course, was a butcher as well, who later in life ran an alehouse. So it's impossible to say what Turpin's prospects were. I mean, he had been apprenticed to and was carrying out a trade, which put him slightly above a lot of other people. Around 1725, Turpin marries a woman by the name of Elizabeth Millington. The couple move back to Essex to set up a butcher's shop in Buckhurst Hill. It looks like Turpin is settling in, maybe preparing to start a family and carve out a happy life in this corner of the countryside. But if that's the plan, they've chosen the wrong spot to settle down. The sleepy hamlet of Buckhurst Hill lies in Watham Forest. It's strategically placed on the stagecoach route between London and Cambridge. The perfect haunt for villains plying their trade or hiding from the law. Waltham Forest and Epping Forest were still literally forests. The Essex gang were obviously mainly stealing deer. And there was a market, certainly in London. Remember, we're talking about the peripheries of the capital. In theory, the consumption of venison was very much restricted to gentry, to landholders. So I think Turpin becomes involved with the Essex gang because he can actually dispose of stolen venison. So the gang can take Turpin, you know, a deer carcass, Turpin can butcher it, and then find somebody to buy it. By the early 1730s, the criminals are so successful that a group of seven verderers of the forests write to the Duke of Newcastle, Secretary of State, pleading for assistance. The response is a reward of 10 pounds to anyone who can identify members of the Essex gang, or a pardon for any member who will sell out their comrades. There are no takers, and the poachers attack with increased ferocity. I think there would have been a degree of 
public sympathy because, you know, obviously people did want for this. And conversely, I mean, people would, I think, be worried about the law-breaking aspects. And of course, even in the deer-stealing phase, there is there are still acts of violence. There's one shooting, at least, where somebody gets shot by them. So there would always be this veneer of violence, if you like, which people would worry about. The Verderers are woefully outnumbered, outgunned, and facing a terrible threat. In the early 1700s, a gunshot is a nasty, life-threatening wound. The firearms of the day simply push a ball of lead at speed into a person, pulping flesh and shattering bone. Most wounds like this will, if the victim doesn't die quickly, lead to amputation with little to no anesthetic, and victims risking a lingering gangrenous death. Gun laws in the United Kingdom will not start to be tightened until the mid-19th century, and a license will not be required until the late Victorian period. One of the things which really comes across from the Turpin story is the availability of firearms. As far as I can tell, certainly, there's no limitations on buying them. You should just go into a shop and buy a couple of pistols. The pistols the Essex gang wield are traditional flintlocks so named because of the hammer, which contains a piece of flint, which, when the trigger is pulled and the hammer falls, strikes a piece of steel called the frizzin, creating a spark. This ignites the gunpowder and fires the bullet. Fortunately for the forest verderers, these are cumbersome, inaccurate, single-shot weapons. The lethal range of a pistol is around 50 meters, but accuracy drops dramatically in the heat of a gunfight. The best indication I can give you is that work has been done on dueling in the 17th and 18th centuries. And what you have in the 18th century is a transition from dueling with swords to dueling with pistols. And completely counterintuitively, the fatality rate in duels drops once they start using pistols, because they are just so inaccurate. And obviously there are single shot weapons so once you've fired, you've fired, and you have to reload, and that takes time and leaves you vulnerable. From verderers to villains, anyone who wants range may carry a musket. With it, a skilled marksman can hit a man at anything up to 250 meters. Cut-down versions, called carbines, are the best of both, used by riders to give range over pistols without the unwieldiness of a long musket. Carbines would be obviously, I think, more accurate than pistols. So I think these things are very unreliable, very inaccurate, but they can still kill, I think is the point. But yeah, it's not like a modern sort of automatic or whatever. By 1734, the well-armed Essex gang have their eyes set on bigger prizes than butchered venison. They turn their hand to a more lucrative form of income, switching from poaching to housebreaking. The gang begin to rob from rural houses in the dead of night, but these are no cat burglars. They target wealthy farmers and merchants, tying up servants and family members while the head of the household is threatened into revealing where the goods are hidden. Whole families are left beaten and traumatized as the gang make off with anything they can carry, coins, jewelry, even plates and cutlery. With the gang now firmly focused on housebreaking, 
Turpin's illicit income from poached venison dries up. He sells his shop, taking on the Rose and Crown Inn at Clay Hill near Enfield. But he's had a taste of criminal enterprise and its easy money, and soon he joins up as a fully-fledged and enthusiastic member of the Essex Gang. A crime spree grips the area, each robbery more violent than the last. The people of Essex sleep with one eye open behind barricaded doors. Turpin and his friends rob a grocer at Woodford, and two nights later, rob a gentleman in the same town. In December, they break into the home of a 73-year-old farmer, relieving him of 300 pounds. Soon after, a gamekeeper is robbed in revenge for an earlier altercation. In January 1735, an article in the political state of Britain describes a large gang of rogues committing audacious robberies in Essex and other places. Public attention grows as the gang's bloodlust increases. Masked and brandishing pistols, they ride riot across the countryside, committing a robbery every week. Turpin begins to take a leading role in the gang's sadistic violence. At the end of January, a reverend's home is attacked, but when the gang realize he's absent, Turpin allegedly flies into a rage. Some even claim it's he who's responsible for the terrible disfigurement of a servant's face. Into February, the gang brutally raid a home in Lawton, Essex, threatening to murder the widowed owner if she refuses to give up her goods. Again, it seems Turpin takes the initiative, roughly handling the woman and threatening to push her into the open fire. The gang make off with a silver tankard and a hundred pounds in cash, but not before drinking and eating the household out of wine and meat. The gang are emboldened by their growing success and move to London, with Turpin returning to his old familiar haunt of Whitechapel. They meet at coaching inns where they can easily pick up intelligence on wealthy farmers and merchants traveling back to their isolated homes. It's at the Black Horse in Westminster three days later that they meet to discuss the robbery of Joseph Lawrence, a farmer at Edgware, outside London. The gang's ringleader, Samuel Gregory, used to work near the farm. He knows Lawrence pays his workers good wages. It's reasoned he's an easy target for rich pickings. It's late on the 4th of February, 1735, when Richard Turpin, Samuel Gregory, and three other men arrive outside the farm. It's a clear, cold night. The moon is almost full, illuminating the five dark figures creeping alongside the house. Turpin pauses outside the door to pull up a handkerchief over his face, then tries the handle. It's locked, but without pause, a swift boot splinters the lock surround. The five men rush inside, shouting and waving pistols around the entrance hall. A man and woman appear to see what the commotion is and are swiftly bundled into the kitchen. Terrified, they reveal they are the servants. While three of the men tie the staff to chairs, Turpin and Samuel go to search out the owner of the house. 
It doesn't take long. A creak on the stairs gives him away. Joseph Lawrence is 70 years old, but that doesn't stop Turpin dragging the man down the stairs, kicking and screaming, and dumping him onto the floor of the kitchen before his terrified servants. Gregory shouts demands and threatens, waving his pistol around the room. But the elderly farmer still refuses to give up his money. Turpin grows impatient. Dick steps forward and tugs the old man's breeches down about his ankles. Humiliated and effectively hobbled, Turpin then kicks the man, grabs his hair, and drags him from room to room. Spittle flies as Turpin screams at the farmer, but old man Lawrence will not be bullied. Turpin rolls him over, then pulls out his pistol. Gripping the barrel, he clubs the man savagely across the bare buttocks. A couple of the other gang members enter and begin to beat the man about the head before Turpin drags old Lawrence back into the kitchen. He picks the semi-conscious man up and sits him in a chair by the fire. Through thick lips and blood streaming from his nose, Lawrence utters a few defiant words. Still, he refuses to give in. Gregory is furious, waving his loaded pistol at the servants. The young maid starts screaming. Gregory pushes his gun into the top of his breeches, leering at her. He unties her from the chair and leads her from the room with her hands still bound. Turpin grins, but is undeterred, turning his attention back to the old man still sat in the chair by the fire. Turpin asks him one last time where the money is. But Lawrence is as tough as they come, and the answer comes back the same. Turpin reaches past Lawrence towards the fire, quick as a flash, and before Lawrence knows what's happening, Turpin snatches up a kettle that's been bubbling on the stove. He empties the contents over the poor man's head. Before his victim can reach to protect his scalded head, Turpin grabs him and sits him, still trouserless, directly onto the hot coals of the open fire. Lawrence's scream is blood-curdling. The smell is nauseating. Behind Turpin, one of the gang looks away. But Turpin's sadistic grin widens as Lawrence's howls of pain subside. His head sags, and he finally splutters out the location of his money. Turpin lets go of the old man. Lawrence drops, curling into a ball on the stone-flagged floor of the kitchen as Turpin fires off commands to the other men. They tear pictures from walls, tip furniture, and throw plates through windows. Anything of value is shoved into sacks, and anything they can't carry is destroyed. They gather in the hallway as Gregory brings the sobbing maidservant back downstairs. He pushes her into the kitchen, and with one last look at the terrified victims huddling together, they disappear into the night. The robbery at the Lawrence farm is a new level of brutality, and one that Turpin takes a leading role in. 
the horrific trauma and distress caused to their victims is even more senseless in light of the meager haul. A cup, a few rings, some sheets, a waistcoat, several towels, and 30 pounds cash. When they turned to housebreaking, I think public sympathy, if there had been any, would just slump. And in the newspapers of the period, these episodes of housebreaking and terrorizing people in the houses are uniformly regarded very negatively. And I think this would have been a, a common feeling. In the face of the increasing wave of violence, an Essex Justice of the Peace writes to the Secretary of State again. He argues that these robberies and the poaching that went before are all the work of the same gang. The Duke of Newcastle ups the reward. It now stands at 50 pounds for information leading to the arrest of any gang members. Fortunately, the gang's reign of terror is drawing to a close, and a new era for Richard Turpin is about to begin. A couple of days after the robbery, the Essex gang are in the Nine Pins and Bowl, an inn at Edgware, not far from the scene of their horrific crime. Showing absolutely no remorse, they've stopped for a pint and some meat on their way to turn over yet another farm in the dead of night. Again, their unfortunate victims are terrorized for little gain, and again, Turpin and the rest of the Essex gang disappear into the darkness. But this time, they haven't been quite as discreet, and fate is not on their side. The landlord of the Nine Pins happens to be walking down a street in London when he spots several horses tied up outside an alehouse. The eagle-eyed man immediately recognizes the horses. It's not hard to put two and two together. He immediately alerts a constable, who in turn gathers an armed mob, including old Farmer Lawrence's two sons, who've been in London following up leads. Bursting into the pub, the mob arrests a woman and three men, all of whom are armed and violently resist. Fortunately for Turpin, he's not drinking with his friends that day and escapes their fate. The youngest of the gang members arrested, a boy of just 15, turns King's evidence and confesses. He names the entire gang and gives up descriptions, addresses, and other vital information. The others are sent to Newgate Prison, with three more gang members arrested in London over the next few weeks, thanks to the information. All but one end up hanged their bodies rotting in gibbet irons near the site of their most brutal crime as a warning to others. In April, the foul Samuel Gregory, leader of the Essex gang, is arrested at Petersfield, losing the tip of his nose to a sword during the brawl. He is tried at the Old Bailey in May 1735 for multiple offenses, including burglary, robbery, and the rape of the maidservant at the Lawrence farm. On the 4th of June, his neck is stretched and his body sent to rot alongside the putrid remains of his comrades at Edgware. By the summer of 1735, the Essex gang is entirely smashed. 
their wave of terror at an end. Now, only two Essex gang members remain at large. Descriptions are circulated in newspapers. Thomas Rowden, a little man, well-set, fresh-colored and full-faced, has small pockholes in his face, wears a blue-gray coat with a light wig, a pewterer by trade. And one Richard Turpin, a butcher by trade, a tall, fresh-colored man, very much marked with the smallpox, about 26 years of age, about five feet nine inches, lived some time in Whitechapel, and did lately lodge somewhere about Millbank, Westminster. Wears a blue-gray coat and a natural wig. With the authorities on their tail and a price on their heads, the two men can't go straight. And without a gang, they can't pull in any income from housebreaking. Instead, they turn to another easy source of income. The crimes for which Dick Turpin will become famous and where his sadistic acts will become cloaked in romantic myth. Next time on Real Outlaws, Dick Turpin takes to the highways, terrorizing travelers on the roads around London. He'll make a name for himself as a criminal in his own right with a crime spree that puts his name on the nation's lips. The notorious highwayman will stop at nothing to stay one step ahead of the law, even cold-blooded murder. But highway robbery is a dangerous game, and it's not long before Turpin is forced to flee to Yorkshire to lie low, establishing a legacy that survives to this day. That's next time on Real Outlaws. If you're enjoying Noiser podcasts and would like to hear them without adverts, join Noiser Plus today. As well as ad-free listening to Noiser originals, including Real Outlaws, Real Dictators, Short History Of, and History Daily, you'll get bonus content and early access to new episodes. Start your free trial today with Noiser Plus. Ah, hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.